You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. Thanks, Andrew and the team. I'm Johnny, he, him. I want to offer a message that I hope encourages you, but before I do that, well, as, we start, as I start doing that, let's start with them. Um, some reading of scripture, just one slide with the text on it for tonight, from 1 Corinthians 15. We've been with Paul in Corinth for the last six weeks or so. This is our last um, Sunday in, in, in Corinthians. So any volunteers to read it? It could be on Zoom. You can just unmute on Zoom and read it, or someone here can do it. Okay, Tokyo. Thanks, Luke. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom of God, uh, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those people do who receive baptism on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And why are we putting ourselves in danger every hour? I die every day. That is as certain, brothers and sisters, as my boasting of you, a boast that I make in Christ Jesus our Lord. If merely human hopes I fought with wild animals at Ephesus, Ephesus, what would I have gained by it if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Come to a sober and right mind, and sin no more. For some people have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-34. Thanks, Tokyo. Let's pray before we keep going. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This section of Corinthians, Paul is talking about being raised from the dead, us being raised from the dead. And in this, he is saying that uh, death is our common enemy. And in this very real time that we live in, it's the enemy that we've been fighting for the last two years as we continue to uh, endure this pandemic. And we still continue to take some precaution to protect the lives of the most vulnerable. 
for the most part, we know that needless death is wrong. And as long as we face the reality of death in front of us, and we know its cost, we're likely to act in unison and in common for the sake of life. I don't think that that's a controversial philosophical or political point. I think that in general, when we're faced with it, we want to act in common and in unison. And we saw some of that same unison to some extent in the summer of 2020 when we witnessed on camera Derek Chauvin murdering George Floyd. It was this visceral moment that many of us experienced. You know, this egregious and immoral act, undeniably. And I spoke to people who, let's just say, don't particularly share my political point of view, right? In my family and in other places, where like, yeah, this was wrong. There's really, there's a moment where it's clear. And it's so horrifying, it mobilized the country to some extent, and even our church to move in an anti-racist direction. The, that dramatic scene changed hearts, changed minds, because we saw the horror of death before us. And when we witness that sort of needless death, it changes us. Death is the uh, climax of sin. It shows us the darkest aspects of our society. It alerts us to where rot is, where sin dwells. Death shows us that. Look out for where people are dying and you can see the sin around it. I had a professor in seminary who described sin as that which diminishes life. So death is the ultimate expression of sin, of our human frailty, of our fallenness, of what we need to be liberated from. Death is so plainly something to be avoided that we go to great lengths to normalize it when it occurs. So even though we're faced with a deadly virus, that's still killing people. You know, we lost my uncle just a month ago from it. Um, and even though we see, we witness police, deadly police brutality, you know, we still tire of the pandemic as we may very well ignore the actual danger of the virus. Not just in terms of death, but in terms of how this is a mass disabling pandemic. Long COVID specifically affects women too. You know, the near million in the United States that have died maybe seem like such an inevitability, something that's impossible or futile to resist. So what force of death informs our indifference? Why do we become indifferent to death on this scale, or why have so many of us become indifferent? Maybe it's the market, maybe that's why, maybe that's the force that's motivating us to say, no, we're not gonna take more precautions because something has to change. This, this, this market isn't working could also be ableism, where we disregard the most vulnerable for some other reason. 
because we already know manifestly that the evil of death is among most of society not something that can be politically discussed. So then what happens when it becomes a talking point? A force of death inter intercepts, interrupts our otherwise common morality, our common good. Here, maybe it's the market, maybe it's ableism. For death not to be the apparent evil that it is, it needs to be disrupted by a force of death in order to normalize it. With George Floyd, same thing happened. Sure, we witnessed police brutality on camera. But what if it weren't on camera? What if it weren't so publicized? What if it were the hundreds of police killings that happened last year? You know, what if it was Walter Wallace that October, which was on camera, by the way? Different reaction, even in our church, to that. Why did the enthusiasm around Black Lives Matter wane as 2020 went on, especially among white people? Why do we lose interest when death is such a clear threat? What's the force of death, like ableism before it in the pandemic, that makes us numb to the reality of police brutality, deadly police brutality? It's racism, it's white supremacy that informs that. That's the disrupting force. That's the force of death that normalizes death. If we don't achieve our climate goals, if, if, if the earth goes up two, two by two degrees, a million and a half people at a minimum will die. And some people say, well, that's not the end of the world. It's a million and a half people, that's, that's Philadelphia. There's a lot of people, you know. It's not inevitable, it doesn't need to happen. So why, why does our common morality about death and life, something to preserve, fall away in that case. Because we all know it. Why does that change? What's the force of death interrupting us? Or how do we justify the death penalty in the United States? It's the carceral state that makes it normal. Or the, war and de the wars and death that follows how do we embrace the idea that we have to kill in order to preserve life? More cognitive dissonance, this time through uh, militarism, and how we're indoctrinated by that force of death. You know, we convince people to prove that they're worth more than anyone bargained for, convincing them to die on the battlefield in glory. But dying is easy, living is harder. Death is a certainty, and preventing death, and pre but preventing death and preserving life might be the noblest thing we can do. We're not trying to live forever on earth. We're trying to prevent suffering that we can prevent, death that we can prevent. We know we can't save everyone, and we know there comes a time where everything has to go. So there's a difference between letting us die to the things we need to die to and preserving life where we need to. We can't let the inevitability of death make us cynical to preventable death in front of us and we can't let the amount of preventable death that we have cause us to change the fact or try to change the fact that we'll all die. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, that's the central that's the central theme. God has come to destroy the enemy of death. That's also on the uh, epitaph of Lily and James Potter, if you're familiar with that um, sacred book, too. The fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead means it's an end to death once and for all. And for the Corinthians, especially the wealthy among them, who we've been calling the strong over the last five or six weeks, this is a radical message. The Corinthians believe Christ has been raised, but there aren't, they haven't connected that to the resurrection of everybody, especially the philosophically superior, the spiritually superior, the people who pride themselves that way. Paul is writing to explain how the resurrection of Jesus not only means they will rise too, but that death will be defeated. Paul describes Jesus as the first fruits of those who have died. As, as the team just sang to us, the first of us to rise. Then Paul goes back to the Old Testament to name Adam, who is an unusual character in the Bible, doesn't have a very explicit role, but as the human through which death came. Jesus is the new Adam, or the second Adam. Maybe you're familiar with uh, during Christmas time when we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and then there's that line five verses in about the uh, second Adam. This is the idea. The human through which resurrection of the dead comes. Death comes through Adam, and it's through this second Adam that resurrection of the dead comes. Christ is the first fruit of it, and those who follow him come next. And then, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler, every authority, and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Pretty radical statement. You could get arrested if you said that out loud right now, right? Every ruler, every authority, every power under his feet, defeated. There's a real consequence to God in the world, Jesus as Savior. Jesus destroys every ruler, every authority, every power, all of his enemies. Even death will be destroyed. Liberation then awaits us. God will destroy all of our enemies, including death. All of those rulers and powers that bring us death. When the market economy does, yes. Ableism, yes. Racism, yes. Destruction of the environment, yes. Militarism, these are rulers and powers over us that God will put under his feet. God puts us all under subjection. We all become God's subjects. That's the subject of chapter 12 through 14 where Paul puts all the wealthy Corinthians, the strong, under the same subjection of God. When God is defeating these rulers, the community that exists under God is a radical egalitarian community where we're equal because we are all subjected to the same ruler and no other force of death orders us. 
We aren't more significant because of our bodily ability, because of our race, because of our gender, because of our sexuality, because of our class in society. Those things that order us change because God has put everything under himself. In Corinth, the most significant fault line is the higher status Christians on one side and the lower status Christians on the other. The weak are the poor and the strong are the rich. I keep saying this because this idea is incredibly important to understanding what's happening in Corinth. That's a significant division. Familiar with the scholarship? If you want to be familiar with the scholarship, read Dale Martin's The Corinthian Body, which I'm drawing from. Paul is yet again naming that God is subjecting everything to himself. And that creates, once again, an egalitarian community, a radically egalitarian community. When we talk about, if you quote, this is popular among Christians, um, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, that sort of uh, Paul's... uh, um, really a statement ahead of its time. The reason we can say that is because we're operating in a world where God is reordering everything. No, don't jump the gun and get there without the reordering. You know, when racial minorities or sexual minorities tell you, no, we are not the same, you are treating us differently, the retort is sometimes, hey, we're, why are you making your race an issue? I thought we were not Jews and Greeks anymore. Why are you making your gender an issue? There's no male or female here, right? That's a sort of diminishment defeats the point. That's a ruler who isn't under God subjecting us. So resist that. This happened in the 1960s in the United States among evangelicals. I was just doing this interview with my friend Jesse Curtis. He used to live in North Philly, got his PhD at Temple. He wrote a book called The Myth of Colorblind Christians. You can listen to the podcast. Laura puts it out for us. Um, and I interview him about colorblind Christians. Are you familiar with this idea? These people that uh, everyone say, I don't see in color for some reason. I don't care if you're black or white or purple. Always purple for some reason. I don't know why, who is purple, but they always say that. I don't care if you're purple. <laughs> they don't see color. And for Howard Jones, who was a black evangelist with Billy Graham, he used that argument to make, in the 1960s, people that followed Billy Graham conscious of race. He used this new humanity, new creation idea. It would be then later be weaponized against him and against people like him. So there is a decent fruit there, but it can be used to harm as well. This liberation that we're talking about over death and its forces creates an egalitarian community. That's the aspiration we want. Christ is the first fruit, and then others will We're still working on resurrection. We're still working on defeating the powers of death that sort us, that order us. Paul even puts Jesus under God temporarily so that God may be all in all. God connects us to him when God puts everything under subjection. And so we are ordered by God. And so is death, ordered to be defeated. 
Paul seems to be offering us a very wide open universalist um, ethic of salvation when he says all in all. And moves us to the idea, he'll go on, he says, otherwise what will those people who do receive baptism on, on behalf of the dead, what, what will those people do who receive baptism on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people, why are people baptized on their behalf? In Corinth, they baptize on behalf of the dead. So far in Circle of Hope, we haven't done that. But in Corinth, they're doing that. Why are they doing that if they're not going to rise again? That's Paul's argument. You have this practice. Why are you doing that if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead? Baptizing on behalf of someone seems to suggest a much more communitarian um, idea of salvation of being saved, or uh, soteriology is the big word. It's, it's bigger than our very individual frame of it. Baptism can then happen on behalf of households, on behalf of communities, on behalf of the dead even. So the societies and the communities can be redeemed, which is far less individualistic than I think what we've even practiced in circle, but also in evangelicalism and just kind of general, let's just say, uh, post-Reformation Christianity. Paul's argument is rooted in the resurrection of the dead. He's arguing the reason these baptisms happen on behalf of the dead is because the dead will rise. And he says, look, if we're not <laughs> going to be raised from the dead, why are we acting in ways that are going to get us killed? Why do we bother to try to do impossible things if it's not for the hope of resurrection? Why should I sacrifice for the greater good if I'm not promised that? What do I do? What do I, if I can't defeat death, this is really what we're saying. If racism can't be defeated, why am I breaking my back over it? You know, if homophobia can't be defeated, why are we doing this? Resurrection gives us hope that these things can be defeated, can be destroyed, can be put under God's subjection, under God's feet, can be defeated. Hope in the resurrection means that white supremacy can end, that homophobia can end, that greed can end, that environmental degradation can end. That gives us hope. Why are we acting in ways that might get us killed if we don't believe that? Why bother to do impossible things if that's the case? Why not just make the most of our lives? Why change the world when we can simply be ordered by it? Why live with a difference? Why do anything differently? Why make any self-sacrifice for the greater good if we are hopeless in defeating these things that order us? Paul says he fights with more than human hopes. Suppose he fought wild animals at Ephesus for some reason. If he didn't, why'd he do that if the dead aren't raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And there are moments where it is very appealing for me just to eat and drink, because tomorrow we die. Because I, I, that sense of hopelessness, you know, what does the writer in the Old Testament say? Beer is good for the poor, or something like that, right? So it's, it's in there. Like this idea that you can have, that, you, that t take what you can, because it's not going to get better, you know? Enjoy all the luxuries and excesses of life. 
because tomorrow it'll end, tomorrow we'll die. Why should we suffer presently? Because our future holds our hope, if, if our future is hopeless. Resurrection allows us to fight for the things that we want now because we have the belief in it. Now don't get caught up right away in the resurrection of the dead as the reason that, for example, you're fighting racism or white supremacy or homophobia or something like that. It's not that resurrection will come. It's that those things, those forces of death that order us can be defeated. That's what the belief in the resurrection means in our present moment. Sure, in the future this will happen. And the reason I'm saying that is because sometimes people will say, these things don't even matter because we're all going to be redeemed anyway, especially when it comes to the earth. No, you can defeat these things now. You can do it now because of the hope that's been given to you. Otherwise, you're acting in a hopeless way as if the dead aren't raised. That's what Paul is saying. If you don't fight the forces of death now, then you're acting and you just live and drink and be merry and do whatever you wish. Then you're acting as if resurrection isn't real. Change your life now is what Paul is saying. That is the evidence of it. Why would I, why would I, why would I fight in such a way that's going to get me de- killed? Why would I do hard things if I don't have any hope in what's happening? We can fight for the things we want now because death will be defeated. We don't have to live in fear preserving the little we have because we are promised much more. We can continue to live an anti-death ethic, fighting the forces of death where we see them. Yes, we will all succumb. But we resist oppression in order to endure our present inevitable suffering. Suffering will happen. Suffering will come to you when you follow Jesus. Can't save you from that. But it doesn't need to come at the hands of the forces of death. It doesn't need to come from abusers and oppressors. Our long suffering as Christians is not a justification for abuse or oppression. Death will come too, but we will be liberated, liberated from it in our bodies. So we can make our church anti-racist, anti-ableist, anti-sexist. And we can do so in a way that might get us killed. Because our hope isn't even found in the, in the arbitrary walls of our church. And the provisional thing that we have and the expression that we have. And if that work, that, that work that fights death and preserves life... Yeah, it might, it might kill us. It might divide our church. It might kill our community. But we should live without fear because we'll be resurrected. We can make an anti-oppressive community where faith grows, where God is experienced in worship, where community happens, where art is created, where joy is fostered. We can do that. That's, that's the end. That's, that's a goal of our anti-oppressive work. And we can give our lives to that work because we know that the, the sun will rise too. Hey, come on in. Those people tried to get in. Someone help them. Yeah, it's okay. I'll go run after them. I've done that a few times in my day. That was the end of the message, actually.
So let's pray and then we'll do some talk back, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for being here, for your faithfulness, for your, uh, resurrection, your, your, the, the, your resurrection that gives us hope, hope that we will rise too. Keep being with us, keep being present, keep giving us hope. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.